Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. James Giordano about neuroethics. This episode is brought to you by Minnesota Functional Neurology Center for Brain Health, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are experienced in treating post-concussion rehabilitation, chronic pain, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in Minnesota. They've greatly helped me and many others in the Twin Cities. Find them online at MN functionalneurology.com. Hello, I am Amy Zalmer, and you are listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. For those of you who might not be familiar with who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I just recently had my fourth brain anniversary. I am a frequent contributor on the Huffington Post, and I volunteer on the Brain Injury Association of America's Advisory Council, and I recently released my second book, Embracing the Journey, Moving Forward After Brain Injury, which will be available on Amazon March 1st. You can learn more about me at facesoftbi.com, and you can also be sure to check out any previous episodes of our podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. Today, my guest is Dr. James Giordano, and he is a professor in the Department of Neurology and Biochemistry and chief of the Neuroethics Studies Program of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and is Executive Director of the Center for Policy for Emerging Technologies, a Washington, D.C.-based international think tank. Dr. Giordano is also Distinguished Visiting Professor of Brain Science, Health Promotions, and Ethics at the Coburg University of Applied Sciences in Coburg, Germany. He has also served as an appointed member of the United States Department of Health and Human Services Secretary's Advisory Council on Human Research Protections and an appointed member of the Neuroethics Legal and Social Issues Advisory Panel of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency as Senior Science Advisory Fellow of the Strategic Multilayer Assessment Branch of the Joint of the Pentagon and as a Research Fellow and Task Leader for the sub-program on dual-use brain science of the European Union Human Brain Project. His ongoing research addresses mechanisms and treatment of neurological disorders and injuries and neuroethical issues arising in and from development, use and misuse of neuroscientific techniques and technologies in medicine, public life, and military applications. So welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. I am honored to be here, Amy. Thank you so very, very much. You have quite the distinguished resume, and that was kind of fun to read through, even though um, it was a little tongue-tied, but it's really cool to see all of the things that you are doing. Um, We were talking before we went live, and I was saying how neuroethics is something I had never actually heard of before, 
And I recently learned about neuro law. Um, and so it just makes sense that there would be a neuroethics as well. Um, and I, w- I would love for you to kind of define that for our listener. Like, what is neuroethics and how did you get involved in it? Well, sure. Neuroethics is a relatively new field. The, the field was titularly birthed, if you will, in the early 2000s. The, the term neuroethics had been used before, but it became very popular at a Dana Foundation conference in California when the late William Sapphire, a New York Times journalist, used the term, and it became very, very much in the awareness of not only intellectuals and academicians, but also very much the public. What, what neuroethics as a discipline instead of practices refers to is really two basic foci. Uh, The first is the neuroethical issues that arise in and from brain research and its various uses, certainly in medicine, also in the public sphere, and increasingly even in in military and the political sphere. And in that regard, we're also talking about how we're using brain science, for example, in the law. So we very often will talk about not just neuroethics, but neuroethical legal and social issues, an acronym that's sometimes abbreviated as NELSI. But the other area of neuroethics comes from an older tradition. It comes from the tradition of moral philosophy and moral psychology. And that's been colloquially referred to as the neuroscience of ethics. That's really not quite an accurate description. But what it really refers to is the cognitive neuroscience of the way humans, and even perhaps other organisms, engage in moral thought and moral actions. What does it mean to have moral thought? How do we do that? How do we parse moral ideas from other ideas? What makes us moral or immoral? But of course, you know, these two things are interactive. They're very reciprocal. Before we can talk about doing the neuroscience of anything, before we look at the various ways that the brain does anything, we have to ask the question, are we doing this in the right way? And we have to also ask the questions, are we using the information and the tools and techniques that we develop in good ways in medicine, in the public sphere, globally. So that's what the field really obtains and entails. And it's it's a fascinating field. You know, and I think it's important because, you know, there does, there's, there's so much research going on, you know, in the neural world. Um, and I, I kind of feel like, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm trying to figure out the, the correct way to say this. Um, but, you know, it's like everybody all of a sudden is very interested in concussions, right? And so everyone's trying to develop the perfect tool to assess concussion on the sideline. And, you know, it's good to know that there are checks and measures in place to try to help weed out this stuff. And are we being ethical? And, you know, as a doctor, you know, the oath is, you know, do no harm. And I realize that a lot of these people trying to develop products aren't necessarily doctors, but, you know, the do no harm, you know, are we, are we actually going to help people or are we doing a disservice by, you know, for instance, maybe creating a product that doesn't really work the way that we say that it's going to work for per se. You make, um, you make a so good point. Um, yeah. A really good point. Um, let me be a stickler here for a bit of detail. If I were going to really hold your feet to the fire of the Hippocratic Oath, what I would say to you is that the real maxim is first do good. And if you can't do the good that you intend to do, well, then at least do no harm. And that's not just a play on words. It's quite important because what it seeks to do is it seeks to advance what we know from the sciences in medicine for the good of patients' benefits. 
But of course, we also have to appreciate how that patient defines the good, what's good for them as a person, and perhaps even larger, what's good for humanity writ large. That situates this as an interesting balance between using these techniques and technologies in the right ways and then trying to employ them in as many ways that are definably good as we possibly can. And you know, you made a great point. You were talking about assessing individuals to be able to determine whether or not there has been a brain injury and how that might then guide not only the diagnosis, but the prognosis and care. And this also opens something of a can of worms, if not maybe even a Pandora's box. And think about opening both. If I were to open a can of worms, I want to see what's inside. And certainly that's one of the ways that we're looking at new methods to assess the brain, the structure and function. But just like Pandora's box, we open the box because we're really looking for all of the fairies and pixies and really good little goblins that live in there. But at the same time, we can let loose some things that may not be so good. So the question then becomes not just what can we do, but what should we do with these new tools and techniques? And once we figure out what we should do, are the systems in place to do what we should? In other words, can we do what we should? So let me give you an example. One of the things that has become very, very important to understand is baseline brain structures and functions. In other words, what represents a brain injury? If someone gets hit in the head, we want to be able to determine on, on a very fine scale if there has been the type of damage on to microstructure, macrostructure, or entire structure of the brain that could then produce deficits in their thought, emotions, or behaviors. And the more specific we can be in trying to determine changes from a baseline, or if you will, abnormalities in brain structure that may lead to functional problems, the better we can perhaps be in diagnosing these things early and intervening in such a way as to then have a positive therapeutic outcome. But one of the things that we might need to do is we may need to take regular and repeated images functional images of the brain. And although at face value that might seem pretty innocuous, you know, we run an interesting balance here when we start talking about things like precision and personalized medicine, particularly when it comes to things like neurology. Because now we're really dealing with the substrate of what makes me me and what makes you you, substrate of the mind, substrate of the self. Look, I'm not reducing mind and self wholly to brain, but it's a real important piece in that cog. So what we would need to do is we would need to be far more specific and perhaps far more frequent in the type of assessments we would need to make of people's brains, perhaps at birth, when they're young, throughout their childhood, in early adulthood, as part of a wellness check. Now, granted, a lot of the techniques that we would be using would be very, very safe with regard to using magnetic types of scanning versus radiographic types of scanning. But even here, the question then becomes, well, what do we do with the information? Where does the information go? Who has access to the information? Is it safe? Can it be hacked? What do these things mean? And of course, what if we find things that are then incidental? So even with regard to assessing at the level of specificity that we were talking about, there may be some issues and problems that arise that certainly we'd have to address, if not resolve, to be able to move forward in a successful way. Yeah, you know, and the whole, you know, is there a control study? You know, are there just some some artifacts in the in the research, and you know, like all that stuff, and that and that's things like, you know, a common person like me, I won't ever even think of that. Um, 
and so it's it's important to know that that stuff is you know being regulated and watched. I, I don't know if regulate is the right word, um, but you know there there's just the brain injury community is vulnerable, and you know every I feel like there's some people who are jumping into the concussion and brain injury world, you know, because it's it's quick money, so to speak. Um, and so I think, you know, it's important for people to be weary of things that seem too good to be true and, and do your due diligence before you do. Um, there's tons and tons and tons and tons of clinical trials out there. And I, you know, I advise the people in my group, I have, I have about 8,500 people in a, in a private Facebook group, you know, and I advise them to do their due diligence to just blindly go into a study, um, thinking that you're going to help, you know, like I get it that we want to be part of that study because we might help other people or um, something might actually help us. Right. Um, But it's important to do your due diligence and understand exactly what you're signing up to do. Right. Um, Yeah. Good point. You you made two points there. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, the, the one is that, as you say, there's just tons of information out there and, as you ask people to do their due diligence, the, the caveat that goes along with that, the, the parentheses that they should understand is, well, and know where you're doing your due diligence because there's a lot of misinformation out there on the web. I mean, we're being bombarded with information. Oh, so going tons. to the right resources. Yeah. I mean, so look, going to the right resources are critical. Going to the resources at the National Institutes of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, at the National Institutes of Health, for example key, critical, going to WebMD, going to PubMed, utilizing websites that are custodial websites that are being run, for example, like people like you, who are able to keep their finger on the pulse of the information and essentially parse it in such a way that only the most useful, valid, and valuable information is that what's going to be made available to those patients who are in need. Because as you've said, they are vulnerable. The second point uh, was made very well is that I think everyone who goes into a clinical trial or even an investigative initiative research trial has the idea that this is going to be of benefit. It's it's a phenomenon we call therapeutic misconception. And particularly when you're getting into a large clinical trial, it is very, very important to understand that that whole process of informed consent is all about allowing that patient to have the latitude and the right to not engage in that trial, to come out of that trial at any particular point, and to refuse those treatments. And if they're uncertain about anything, anything at all, ask questions, and if, in fact, they feel this is not doing them benefit, they do have the right to drop out of those trials. So requesting information in these clinical trials is jokingly like voting in Chicago. Do it early and do it often. An informed patient is a good patient, and an informed subject represents our best and most responsible subject. And I really like the point you made that if for any reason you feel uncomfortable, you know, you can drop out of a study, you know, um, and I think that's a very, very good point to just kind of, you know, bring back up a little bit again, um, you know, because I, I try to be really careful with what I allow in my group because people will just post random studies and I, you know, if it doesn't at least link back to like a reputable hospital or university, I do remove them. I'm like, I just, I don't know who is putting on the study, so I don't want my people seeing it even. You know what I mean? Like, there's just there's oh, yeah. so much stuff out there that we're inundated with. Like I'm truly amazed how many studies are going on at any given moment. 
You know, I mean, I have a colleague of mine, uh, Professor Roger Scruton. He's a philosopher. And he looks at all these new neuroscientific developments, and, and he jokingly calls a lot of them neuro-nonsense. And he's got a wonderful English accent. He sounds so much better than my New York <laughs> accent when he says it. But Roger makes a very good point. There is a lot of nonsense out there. There's a lot of babble. And, of course, for the layperson who's not able to navigate what is viable, what is valid, and what is therefore of value, it can become overwhelming because things that have to do with the brain are very sexy. You know, you see these brain images all over the media, all over the Internet. And quite frankly, as you've said, a number of people have jumped on the brain injury bandwagon, so to speak, the majority of them with with perfectly good intent, and they're doing very, very good work. But again, for patients, being able to sift through this level of information, through this virtual myriad of neurological information that is available to them on the web may be very, very difficult to do. So good, sound custodial services to be able to keep a finger on the pulse of that information is vital. Exactly. And so tell me, you you had mentioned before we um, came on air that there's kind of three pillars to um, neuroethics. And I'd love for you to kind of dive into those three pillars a little bit. Yeah, well, you, you know, neuroethics has, it, it's, again, the, the, the three major areas of neuroethics are, the again, the, the neuroscience of ethics. So we can kind of hold that aside, but, but not completely aside, particularly for individuals who've had a brain injury. We'll get back to that. The second is the ethics of neuroscience, and that's tremendous. And that third is really the legal and social issues that interface with ethics. Now, if we're looking at patients who have brain injury, the two things that are critical to brain injury are assessing the injury and treating the injury. And more and more what we see is coming out of the brain sciences, particularly moving ahead from the large-scale financial momentum that has been infused here in the United States by the Brain Research to Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies Initiative, the Brain Initiative, and in Europe, the European Union Human Brain Project. These are highly translational research projects that are looking to take new developments in the brain sciences and move them fairly rapidly from the research bench to the proverbial bedside. In other words, make them available for clinical diagnoses and care. There's some very exciting things out there. We'd already spoken about various forms of advanced neuroimaging. We're also looking, for example, at certain what we call biomarkers, markers of brain function, chemical markers, genetic markers, where we know that some people may be more vulnerable to brain injuries than others. My own work has examined brain injury as something referred to as a spectrum disorder, where even subtle injuries to the brain or subtle insults to the brain in some people will actually lead to more profound damage, whereas in other people, they may be somewhat more resistant to these effects because of a host of factors, genetic factors, lifestyle factors, conditioning factors. Trying to explore this is very, very important. But it's not just a question of assessing the brain, because very often what we assess the brain to do is to access key areas, nodes, and networks of the brain to then be able to affect the damaged brain. In other words, to be able to heal what has been harmed. And here we're looking at some very exciting new techniques and technologies, a host of new drugs that are coming to the market that have been really developed because we understand brain chemistry of injury far better, things that help to suppress the inflammatory process, things that help to regrow those damaged parts of the brain. But then we're also looking at the use of devices and implantables. Some of the devices we're looking to engage are what we call transcranial devices. And we know 
that in some individuals who've suffered particularly mild forms of TBI, who may have post-concussive damage or other forms of neurological insult, the use of transcranial electrical or magnetic stimulation may be useful in helping to restore some of those cognitive and even behavioral and motor functions. But I have a caveat here. You know, products are also available direct to consumer. There are some very good, well-manufactured products on the market. Again, I'm not going to mention any brands. But what we're also very concerned about is that there may be some misuse on the part of consumers. Like so many other things, just because something is marketed well, has been tested well, and is a safe and sound device that is directly marketed to the consumer for transcranial electrical stimulation, you know, sometimes people can misuse it. And so the idea there, of course, is to make sure that people who are getting these things through the Internet use them exactly as they are defined to be per the instructions and per the commercial supplier. We've just had a, a paper released about low-output transcranial electrical stimulation that really speaks to some of these regulatory policy and use issues. And I'd be happy to send you a paper, Amy, so that you could then make that paper available to, to folks in, in, your, in your audience. But then, you know, That'd be great. the other issue, yeah, sure. The other issue is that more and more we recognize some of those more profound forms of brain injury may not necessarily be responsive to those types of stimulatory or brain modulatory effects would need to go through the skull. This is where we're really getting into the advanced neurotechnologies. These are the indwelling brain devices, deep brain stimulation, neuroprosthetics, and increasingly we're looking to actually try to replace or regrow tissue in the brain through the use of reprogrammed autologous stem cells and other forms of stem cells. This is all cutting-edge science. At this particular point, we're moving the science from the research phase into that phase where we're beginning early-stage trials. But I think what's important to understand is that this is new. And because it's new, we don't have such an understanding of long-term effects and that it's important that patients who are engaging in these trials are assured the continuity of their clinical care. And again, I'm very optimistic because those sites that are doing this type of work are providing the type of ongoing longitudinal stable care for many of the dimensions of the brain-injured patient that occur not only as a consequence of their injury, but also can occur as a consequence of the treatment and various side effects that may occur. So I think that we're on a very good cusp of creativity and innovation. And your earlier point about patients being informed consumers and trying to get the right information with the right value is absolutely crucial, which is why a, a radio blog such as yours and your website and Facebook so, so important for those patients in need. Yeah. And, you know, it's like you said, once you start getting into those more invasive procedures, it's even more critical to have checks and balances, I guess, for lack of a better term in place. Um, you know, like there's, it's, that's a pretty big deal to be part of something like that. So um, to just be very well informed and knowing that there's people out there like you who are uh, keeping tabs on everything, so to speak. Um, it's, it's important. It's important research that we're doing, but it's also important to know that there's somebody kind of watching over it, so to speak too. Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And thank you for the compliment. You know, I, I think the thing that's also very important for your, for your audience to understand is that 
many of the, the large hospital centers and many of the physician groups that are doing this type of work, what we call translational research work, investigator-initiated research work, uh, are really trying to extend the boundaries of knowledge so as to be able to take that next leap in being able to more accurately assess brain injury, who is vulnerable to brain injury, what we can do to prevent brain injury in some ways. We know there are certain forms of preconditioning and adaptation that make people's brains more hardy. Some of my own research speaks to that. But then also, once brain injury occurs, this is not necessarily an acute event. Very often, even a mild brain injury, as you know, will have long-lasting effects. And being able to first and foremost understand the gravitas of that, that this is real, this manifests itself across a spectrum of potential effects that range from thought disturbances to behavioral disturbances to emotional disturbances to problems in physiology, and that we like to say in brain science, see one brain, see one brain. In other words, depending on the nature of the damage, no two TBIs are really identical. And Mm -hmm. the idea of personalized precision assessment and intervention, this is really the drumbeat that we're trying to manifest with our neuroethical approach. Each patient is an individual. Each brain is different. And that requires a slightly more precise and I think more granular level of assessment and certainly level of care. So what would you recommend to someone listening who is considering, you know, maybe being a part of a study or maybe buying a product that's been recommended? Um, You know, I'm just going to use an example just for example, like um, there are like some like a TENS unit that you can that you can get um, to use at home on your muscles or whatever, not necessarily brain related. But, um, you know, what what is your advice for people, you know, looking to buy a product or looking to be part of a study? What advice would you give them before going into something like that? The easiest advice is tread cautiously and be informed. Now, now let, me, let me dial that in a little bit to be more specific, so to be more useful. When I said trade cautiously, I mean, there's a lot of things that are available, particularly direct to consumer. Check out the company. Check out the reputability of the company. Make sure that company has done their research and they've done the research with their product. Make sure that that company is well certified. Make sure that the product has been underwriters lab certified and that there are no complaints filed with the Federal Trade Commission, that they're working in full compliance with the device regulations from the Federal, uh, from the Food and Drug Administration, from the FDA, for that level and type of device. The direct to consumer market is where we really, we really pay particular attention not so much on the side of the commercial distributors and manufacturers because the regulations for such manufacture must be maintained, but we worry about patient misuse, not even necessarily intentionally, right. and that can be a real problem. The suggestion here is that if patients are going to utilize a direct-to-consumer product, they certainly consult with their physician or, or their clinician to be able to ascertain, is this the right product for them, what are the parameters of use, how to use it safely, and how to use it effectively. If, in fact, what they're looking to then do is get into an investigator-initiated research trial or a larger-scale randomized control trial, again, information is the key. Do your research. Talk to people at the site. Get as much information as you can about the research group. Try to understand what the parameters are of the research and make sure that you work with a case manager, and particularly for our brain-injured patients. This is a lot of information. And as you know, many of our brain-injured patients 
find this type of information to be somewhat fatiguing and it, yeah. it can actually right. be problematic. The vulnerability of the brain injured patient is paramount. So be sure that you have someone who's working as a viable support and surrogate for you who's able to navigate you through the informed process so that you know what you're consenting to. Yeah, you know, and have have someone else look it over for you too, whether, you know, maybe a spouse or a parent or a friend. Because um, like you said, it can be exhausting and overwhelming to, to look at that information. So maybe if you have someone else who can help you with that research, um, just another set of eyes, you know, is always helpful. Um, Correct. You know. I, I wish that I'd had someone with me, even just going to my doctors in the beginning, because I was so, you know, out of it that I didn't even think to write things down or ask questions. Right. And, you know, it's, it is, it's, when you have a brain injury, it's just a whole different world. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's, it's overwhelming emotionally and it's overwhelming yes. cognitively. And of course, that's where we're talking about support and surrogacy. We really do need someone to go with these patients to make sure that they're comprehending everything and it's not just over, overwhelming, as you said, both emotionally as well as intellectually. And it can be. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, I've looked into some studies and some of them are like a really long time period. And, you know, you might have to go like three times a week for like eight weeks or something. And, and you know, that's a pretty big time commitment. So, you know, also just knowing, are you able to actually commit to that? Um you know, like that, that I determined it was going to be too exhausting for me to do the one study that I was going to do, because it was about four hours away from me. Um, And, you know, I know some of the studies pay the participants, um, some, you know, pay for expenses. And there's, there's just a whole lot of variables and a whole lot of information that you do need to know if you want to be part of a study. Um, Absolutely right. Dr. Giordano, is there anything we did not touch on that you wanted to make sure we talked about? No, no. I think that uh, we, we touched all the bases. I mean, certainly at least skimmed across the top. I mean, well, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about some of the new developments coming out of the brain sciences that are soon to be available for patients, not only with brain injury, but with a host of other neurological and psychiatric conditions. But of course, like anything else, um, we're, we're faced with the balance. We want these things to rush to market, yet we want to be equally prudent in making sure they're not only effective, but they're safe. So a bit of patience on the part of the patients, <laughs> be, be patient right. with the science. And of course, like anything else, uh, recognize that this is new science and very often things can go wrong. But of course, recognize also what we're trying to do is the best job that we can in getting the right tools for the right task to the patients when they need them the most. And is there a um, a website to find out like any clinical trials going on near you? Um, I, I believe well, ab- there is one, and I can't come up with it off the top of my head. Well, absolutely, I, I would recommend what what your patients do is is they just log on to the National Institutes of Health general website and then go on to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And that website will list any NIH-funded clinical trials that are available in your patient's areas. And, of course, that's, that's probably the best resource because that is the federal government's resource for clinical trials. They can also go to clinicaltrials.gov to get a listing of ongoing trials and perhaps planned trials. And so both of those resources taken together would certainly be viable to help to direct patients to those trials that may be uh, useful for them and convenient in their area. Perfect. Yeah. And it was the clinicaltrials.gov. That's the one that I was thinking of. So thank you. I would have never come up with that. (laughs) 
Well, this has been great. This is so interesting and, you know, it's really important stuff and, you know, there's a lot of really good things being done and, um, I don't by any means want to discourage anyone from being part of a trial, but just to really do your due diligence and make sure that it's being done, um, you know, by someone reputable and, and ask questions and make sure you get all your answers covered before you commit to doing a trial. Um, do you have any final words on that? No, I think you're right. You know, just as we in the research and, and clinical treatment arena have a set of obligations to our patients and to society, Patients come in with uh, some responsibilities, too, and that responsibility mm-hmm. is to, as you say, do that due diligence and also recognize that they're playing an active role in helping to shape the research and its potential benefits. So be as informed as they can to make sure that the trial is the right trial for them and they can participate. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for being here and sharing your time with my listeners today. I really appreciate it. I think this is such an interesting subject. And like I had said, you know, this isn't something that I've had on my podcast. So I think this is really, really interesting. And just thank you so much for being here. Oh, that, that's, that's, it's been my pleasure. And if you if your folks want to get in touch with me, they can reach me at Georgetown. i uh, be happy to give you my email. It's james.giordano, G-I-O-R, D-A-N-O, at georgetown.edu. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being open to our listeners. Um, And I just really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. So thanks again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you have enjoyed today's podcast. I know I sure have. Um, You know, definitely an interesting topic that I haven't. I'm starting to hear more and more about neuroethics and neural law. So it's, it's really kind of exciting to start hearing this stuff. And so anyway, thank you everyone for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, you can find all of our previous podcasts at basesoftbi.com. And another thank you to our sponsor, Minnesota Functional Neurology. You can find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. And thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. And I will see you all again next time. Have a great day, everyone. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.